This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, if I push that button, this should work. Are we on the air? Hooray! <laughs> All right, welcome to our second broadcast from our new home here at Zoomerplex in Liberty Village in Toronto, Canada. And I look out my window, I'm so pleased to have a window, and uh, looking across a sure sign of spring, not only because it's raining and the weather is uh, getting warmer, uh, but the uh, the big bubble bubble over uh, Allen Lamport Stadium, as I look out across Liberty Street to my right, is down. Okay, they've taken the bubble down, so they're getting ready to play whatever they play over there, soccer, football. Do we know what they play at Allen Lamport Stadium, Tim? We don't know. It may be a practice facility for the the Toronto Argonauts, for all I know. I don't know, for all of you CFL fans. Anyway, uh, spring has sprung, I guess, officially. And uh, it's Palm Sunday for my Greek Orthodox friends. Had the, uh, the boys uh, in, their, uh, in their Sunday finest today out in front of the house taking pictures. And uh, Zachary, uh, the, eldest of, uh, the eldest of my twins <laughs> by two minutes, uh, missing his front teeth. He swallowed, he swallowed both of them. He's very distraught about that because, of course, he wanted to save those. Uh, uh, my mother, or my wife, rather, uh, collects those, keeps them in a locket around her neck. It's not morbid, I don't think. It's just a loving thing she likes to do. Anyway, he swallowed both his teeth. He's very upset. Uh, anyway, he's got lots more to come. So, welcome to the broadcast. I want to uh, just give you a quick heads up what's coming up next week. Our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, along with... Uh, Miss Steele from Bloom and Steele will be here uh, talking about the 10 lost tribes of Israel and biblical prophecy. So you want to mark that down on your calendar. That should be a good program coming up next week. Right now, however, very happy to uh, welcome back to the broadcast Joel Skousen, who is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. He's also a designer of high security residences and retreats. He's designed self-sufficient and high-security homes throughout North America. However, you may know him best from this program as the publisher of a weekly news analysis service uh, entitled World Affairs Brief, in which he discusses the ongoing globalist conspiracy to undermine national sovereignty and create wars and other provocations. 
And uh, always a pleasure to have Joel aboard. Joel, how are you? I'm just fine. It's really good to be with you again, Richard. Well, lots going on, and uh, we like to call this segment Backstage in the Global Theater. Let's start with uh, Boston. And, of course, uh, we're now into this sort of official um, a period of mourning, official mourning uh, for the victims uh, of that horrible, tragic event. A lot of inconsistencies in the official version still remain. Uh, why don't we start? Give us an update. What, what's, what's the latest that, that you're hearing about this event? Well, you know, as typical with even the Sandy Hook uh, massacre, we have a lot of false conspiracies coming out here now. And uh, one of the most pernicious is the, the claim that there really were no injuries, but all of that was a masquerade, that they were instantly dressed up in the smoke of the, uh, you know, and suddenly came out without legs. And, and uh, I'm just uh, very, very upset that there was so much legitimate problems with conspiracy going on that we have to battle things that say, you know, Sandy Hook never happened, that they were all actors, and that isn't true either. Uh, it really happened. There was a cover-up by government. There were more than one shooter in Sandy Hook. Uh, one of them was on the ground with his hands uh, down his back, handcuffed. Uh, one boy walked out of school and said that very, very plainly. And yet the government has never revealed any of these people that they took into custody around Adam Lanza. There were at least three people and potentially four. Likewise, in the marathon bombing, we have a problem in the sense that the uh, video photographs of the uh, two Sarnea brothers, uh, Chechens, uh, uh, you know, the backpacks simply don't match. The one exploded backpack that we know is definitively part of one of the bombings. But interestingly enough, uh, the government claims to have extremely detailed information. In the indictment that they gave, they talk about watching their every move, detaching from the crowd, looking left, looking right, talking on a cell phone for 15 seconds walking over to a barrier, putting his backpack down, walking away and turning around when the explosion, you know, it just, this is like they've got an actual, you know, side-by-side video camera going on with these two brothers constantly. How would they have gotten, how would they have gotten such detailed footage? Well, there was one camera that was looking down from the Forum restaurant through an overlooking glass window. In other words, the window was a pop-out window. And the camera was looking down toward the where the tables were in the outside portion of the restaurant. And so you would have been able to see that kind of detail. The problem is that I have with this is the government never produced that video. Uh, you know, I find it, as I pointed out in the World Affairs Brief, I find it very difficult that any prosecutor would... would write down this kind of detail and not be able to show that evidence to the court unless, as I said, he's already determined that the government plans to use the State Secrets Act to deny or to get it sealed, and they have numerous judges that they can lean on to make sure that it does get sealed. We have that happening in the JFK assassination. They sealed up the autopsy results. They sealed up the brain uh, so that nobody could examine it. It happened with uh, you know, Martin Luther King. They sealed up his records for 50 years so that no one could tell his communist connections and his gross immorality. The <laughs> FBI has 13 file cabinets full of pornography as they tracked him in prostitutes uh, throughout his lifetime. I mean, a massive hypocrite. So this is not atypical that the government can get away with this. 
But I think the purpose of putting out such a specific narrative to the public is they they couldn't possibly be lying. It's too specific. Well, the the videos – sorry, Joe, but the videos and the pictures that you've seen, uh, again, I want to talk about those backpacks that the uh, Tsarnarev brothers were wearing. You're saying those backpacks they were wearing that supposedly contained the explosive devices don't match the ones – the remnants of the ones that were discovered on the ground. That's correct. The one that was discovered on the ground had black shoulder straps and a white strip of cloth in the middle of the shoulder of each shoulder strap, and it had a square white patch on the top of the pack. The The older Sarnayev brother has a grayish pack, no white stripes anywhere, no white patch. It's very clearly seen in the, in the video. The, the younger Sarnayev brother has a white or light-colored pack with a few black stripes. Simply doesn't match at all. So if the government is saying that they have videos of them laying the backpack down and those backpacks exploded, then now they have to explain how come those backpacks do not match. And I repeat, do not match the exploded backpack which has been introduced into evidence. Joel Skousen is with us. problem, too. Neither backpack appears to be bulging sufficiently to account for a huge pressure cooker which is at least 10 inches in diameter. It just, it just isn't believable. There's a pressure cooker in those packs. Uh, now, the, the one thing that I had put in the brief, this last week's brief, that is original with me is the analysis of the fuses and the triggering mechanism. Right, and right. There is a lot, of, a lot of back and forth on what was the triggering, uh, triggering device. Was it a cell phone? Was it the remnants of a, a, a remote control a car, like a child's toy? What was the triggering device? Well, it had to be something sophisticated, but it doesn't match anything that the government is saying. For example, the government keeps saying that the, they had green-colored hobby fuses in these bombs. Well, a hobby fuse requires a match or a hot glowing source to ignite. It's almost impossible to devise a radio-controlled, using a remote-controlled car, toy remote, which communicates with the car with radio waves, and then it actuates the circuitry, the motor, to go backwards and forward and reverse, turn around, or spin. But there's no mechanism in a toy remote car controller to strike a massive spark or a flame that's going to light a green fuse. Now, it's even more difficult to do that with a, a cell phone. This is high technology to be able to intervene, open up a cell phone without ruining it, and get it to have a trigger which has to be attached to an electronic blasting cap. And in these now, surveillance videos or wherever these videos come from that we've seen, we see... Uh, one of the Tsunarev brothers speaking on his cell phone just moments before the blast, correct? That's right. And they say 18 seconds. Well, if you're going to trigger something with a cell phone, it doesn't take 18 seconds talking on the cell phone. You simply dial the phone number and it goes off. Period. There's no reason to put it to your ear at all unless you want to fake something. But the point is, from the time he puts it to the ear, there's 18 seconds before the bomb goes off. So that doesn't appear as if he triggered it, because he couldn't have triggered it when it was on his ear, and if he triggered it before he put it to his ear, why the 18-second delay? What about, some sort of a, what, some, what about some sort of a clock timer? Now, a clock timer has the same problem. You can trigger, with a battery and a clock timer, you can trigger an electronic circuit which can ignite an electronic blasting cap, but you can't strike a match with it. You have the same problem. 
And it's extremely difficult and not reliable to ever have a match involved or some kind of flame igniter involved in electronic science. Why would you go to all that trouble when you can get blasting caps that are electronically ignited? So you see, what I'm saying is, it looks more and more like these brothers were part of a terrorist group that was handled by FBI agent provocateurs. And they used more sophisticated things than these boys are capable of doing. But these boys were fingered to take the blame. Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief with us here on The uh, Conspiracy Show. Joel, there were uh, uh, pictures, videos of other people hanging around, uh, wearing fatigues uh, with a um, what appeared to be a, a ball cap with the a Navy SEAL insignia on it. The, uh, the, well, that's the, actually the Punisher insignia. This is a comic book character called the Punisher. And Navy SEALs and Special Forces have adopted that. As it's kind of a skull with three long lines underneath the skull. It's called the Punisher, but it's come from a comic book character. And yes, these people were, there were quite a few of them around. We've identified three teams. These are National Guard members, part of CST teams, uh, the civilian service teams, and uh, they do high tech analysis of weapons of mass destruction. That's their only purpose. They're trained. That's why one of them pulled out a handheld radiation monitor to be able to check immediately after the explosion went off whether there was radiation. He was checking to see if there was a dirty bomb. I believe the backpacks these people had on, they were uh, navy blue, dark navy blue or black jackets or shirts with khaki pants and khaki boots. Everyone on the same uniform. This is, by the way, the same uniform that Secret Service uses when they're on civilian duty. Uh, it's the same uniform that various other federal services, so it's no strange thing that the uh, National Guard took up that particular uniform. Joe, let me just jump in here. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll okay. talk about these uh, individuals wearing the fatigues, wearing the the Navy SEAL uh, cap or whoever it was. What were they doing there? Joel Skousen, World Affairs Brief, backstage in the Global Theater right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Taking a peek backstage in the Global Theater with Joel Skousen, who is the publisher of World Affairs Brief. Joel, before we continue talking about the Boston Marathon bombing, how do people subscribe to World Affairs Brief? They can go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, and there's a big uh, subscribe button that takes you to registration. There's a modest uh, fee, $48 a year, for my World Affairs Brief to support my work. But people can also get a free sample issue by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com, and I'll be happy to send them this current brief that we're talking about that has my entire analysis of what we know now about the Boston Marathon. It's my update issue of last Friday. And they get that delivered basically right into their inbox of their email uh, account uh, every week. Every week, a PDF version, which you can... Or if they want privacy, they can just log into the website and download it as well, either way. All right, worldaffairsbrief.com, and uh, right there on the homepage, you'll see subscribe. All right, now, these... uh, First of all, where are you getting your your um, your evidence? Are people sending you photographs? I mean, it seems like everybody was taking photographs uh, in the immediate aftermath. Uh, who? How are you? You know, cobbling well, all this the together. The world is a, is awash with evidence now. The only thing that's not out there is what the government claims they have, and that's very very strange. I'm just, there's just no reason to do that. If they claim 
that this is an ongoing investigation, so we can't reveal this evidence to the defense. They've already revealed, you know, uh, half of uh, of the evidence. In uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Not entirely, but I mean, I mean the, the, the important thing what is I'm here. What I'm saying is the, the FBI has purposely put out there on the web uh, photos of the brothers and said, we don't want you to look at anything else but these photos. These are the people of interest that we have, and they talk about their backpacks, they talk about the explosion, but they don't give us the evidence that proves the guilt. Right. But they right. are giving evidence that prove, proves partial guilt, you see. Right, right. And so they cannot use the excuse that we can't let this out because this is an ongoing... You've already let out, you know, half of it. You just haven't let out let out the conclusive half, you see. All right, so let's go back to these uh, individuals that were seen wearing fatigues, what appeared to be that Punisher ball cap, uh, which, have, which is, has been adopted, as you say, by Navy SEALs and, and Secret Service and, and so forth. What do you think they were doing? Well... Clearly, they were there because they were to analyze the bombing when it went off. This is strong evidence that the government knew that a bomb was going off. Why else would you bring in bomb analysis teams, three of them? One from New York, one from Massachusetts, and, and a picture of the guys running around and the ones with backpacks. Uh, you know, We've been able to look at the actual faces of those individuals and match them to the National Guard outfit the CSP team in Massachusetts. It met, it's a perfect match. That we've, we've got them ID'd. Alistair, so, uh, sorry, uh, was it Alistair Stevenson, or Alistair Stevens, the coach for the uh, cross-country team? Uh, from Mo- Mobile, right. Yes. Have, we been able to, have you been able to verify uh, what he said to be true, that, that he saw dog bomb yeah, sniffing are, dogs there's, there's two public interviews that he's given confirming the same thing so i have no doubt that you know and what he said was they said this was an exercise but more importantly he saw snipers on the roof he saw various police but you see that's not necessarily a problem to have increased police presence that isn't telling that isn't a, a smoking gun issue what is a smoking gun issue is that they were using loudspeakers, megaphones, to announce to people, this is an exercise. Do not be concerned. This is an, and then the city of Boston denies that there was an exercise. Now, why would they do that when hundreds of people heard those megaphones announce that this is a drill, this is an exercise? The reason is they don't want the public to put two and two together about foreknowledge of this event. That's why... You know, with all of the conspiracy theories floating around the internet about what were these guys in khakis and navy blue jackets doing, obviously, uh, you know, working with FBI and others, what were they there for? What did they have these big backpacks on for? Uh, the government could have easily come out and said, oh, those were National Guard uh, CST team members, which are chemical, biological, radiological, and warfare analysis, bomb analysis people. Then the question is, what were they doing there? Why did you have them there? Why did you have three teams there if you didn't know that there was going to be a bomb? Now, I'm, I'm very adamant about this because in London, they had increased police protection. In every other marathon, even before Boston, they had very much increased police protection, but never have they had specialized bomb analysis people who are there to analyze a bomb after it goes off, except in Boston. I think it's strong evidence of foreknowledge. Senator uh, Chambliss of Georgia also said publicly on Channel 2 News of Atlanta 
that one of the federal agencies that he talked to did have advance warning that the bomb was going to go off. The other interesting thing was when the FBI released these uh, photos of the Sarnayev brothers, they said, we need your help. We don't know who these people are. And yet, as you pointed out in World Affairs Brief, they'd been supposedly in communication with these individuals. In fact, I believe that Sarnayev brothers' mother indicated that the FBI had been in communication with these two for, for months, even possibly years. Yeah, she said three to five years ago. Now, even if she's wrong about the five, you know, even if it's two years, the FBI started out saying it was only six months ago. They're trying to downplay this, downplay their foreknowledge of it. So it's very much like the 9-11 hijackers. We're all in the computers, had, had CIA backgrounds, had, um, you know, the government had used them. They'd been at military bases. The tracking of these uh, 9-11 hijackers and their connection with government is just a powerful argument of uh, this being a government operation. The fact that they knew these boys, and now we come to find out that the uncle, the one who labeled them these losers, the uncle Sarmi, you know, is married to uh, uh, Graham, I'm trying to think uh, the last name, anyway, a, a longtime CIA operative. For you know, He's married to his daughter. Now, so that's a very interesting thing. Now, that isn't proof of anything in and of itself any more than the fact that Alex Jones has some relatives that are in the CIA. But it is very notable that when you have a top uh, agent like uh, Graham is in the CIA and your daughter is married to a Chechen, uh, that if there is any utility to be had from that Chechen, the CIA is going to make, a use, make good use of those relationships to get something going there. So we really can't tell whether anything the uncle, whose name is Sarni, is, uh, is saying whether or not it's true or whether it's propaganda. He's tainted as far as what I'm concerned now. Joel Skousen is with us here on The Conspiracy Show from World Affairs Brief. The, the actual takedown of the, uh, of the Sarnarov brothers, a lot of inconsistencies there. Let's start with the, uh, the eldest, uh, who was supposedly, uh, first I think we heard that he was shot by police, uh, during an altercation, and the and uh, the the brothers were throwing hand grenades at the police. Uh, walk us through some of the problems with the official version of the takedown. Well, the problem with the official version it basically started with the uh, the carjacking, um, um, and you know it, it, there's a lot of unexplained things. Why they needed another car? You know they had a working car. Uh, one of the interesting things I want to point out first, though, is that the FBI contacted these boys a couple of days after the bombing. And uh, one of them called and said, you know, the feds are after us and, and we've got to get out of here. I don't know of any example where you have a federal terrorist investigation where the FBI calls up the suspect and warns them that we're coming to get you. Yes, <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty bizarre. To say and the least. Especially when they knew where they lived, they knew their telephone numbers, they were uh, tapping their phones, their internet uh, conversations, they knew everything about these boys. And yet they called them up to warn them. And I think here's the reason. I think they wanted these two patsies dead so that they couldn't tell anything about the wider organization that they were part of, and especially the specific personalities which may end up being agent provocateurs working for the FBI. The FBI and every single Muslim prosecution, except the Times Square bombing, which was a botched uh, you know, propane bottle job, every Muslim prosecution has been involved with an FBI informant. 
who's much more than informant. He ends up being an agent provocateur. He's, he's goading them into actions. He gives them 9-11 truth, things to look on the Internet. He, uses to, he, he wants to excite them into hatred against the United States government. Then they plan them, they give them the equipment, they, they give them the detailed plans, and they take them all the way up to the actuation of the event, and then they arrest them. If there's ever a case of absolute entrapment, it is that kind of procedure. And I think the same thing is going on in here. But I think rather than show up and arrest them, which they could have easily done, then all of a sudden the FBI is responsible for the lives of the people in their custody. By putting them out on the run, by calling them in advance and scaring them into running, which is obviously what they did. They had to go get money from an ATM, they had to hijack a car, they wanted to switch cars, all of this stuff, and the government was tailing them every way, moved in uh, at the end, and the boys, you know, when they saw police, a couple of police cars fall, and then started to lob these pipe bombs, according to the government. Now, remember, this is the only information we have is from the government. We don't have any independent uh, confirmation of this whatsoever. But then the police chief of Watertown, whose name is Edward Deneuve, engages one lie after another, uh, talking about this massive gun battle they had with the two brothers. Come to find out now there was only one gun between them. Couldn't have been a massive gunfight. They talked about them lobbing a uh, similar pressure uh, cooker-type bomb uh, at them. And... uh, then they talked about the fact that the younger brother got in a car and drove over the older brother. But a witness came forward the next day after his testimony and said it was the police who drove over the older brother. And then the police ran up and filled him full of holes. The autopsy physician said there was not one part of his body that wasn't uh, you know, wounded. And when you see this autopsy photo circulated from a policeman who was gloating over this dead person, you see a great big gash from the back of his armpit all the way to the front, through, across through the rib cage, cutting all the ribs. There is nothing involved with that shootout or a car hitting them that could have made this bed of this huge gaping hole uh, well, in this person's rib cage. Well, Joe, I then seen that. I have, I unfortunately. I did, I did see that photo, and it's true. There is this uh, enormous wound in his side, which one wouldn't expect from a, uh, from a shooting or from being run over. Uh, so, right. But then it gets really bizarre because we have that CNN footage of the police arresting someone, stripping him down naked to make sure he didn't have any explosives on him, and then basically frog-marching him naked into the back of a squad car in Watertown. And, and then, his, and his the aunt, aunt of the, the aunt recognizes Montelius that that's Tamerlan. That's Tamerlan Sonara. That's the older brother. That's her 100%, nephew. Right. A hundred percent certain. And that means that he was in police custody at some point. Uh, and, you know, we don't know whether that footage was before, although that was a news footage that did that. So that, uh, you know, if they wanted to, they could confirm the time date stamp on that. But uh, either they had him in custody and then somehow he got back out on the street so they could kill him, or they had him in custody after the shootout, although there's no wounds on him at this point. And in in any case, you get into the hospital and you see that major wound from head to toe and all the bullet holes in it. Something just doesn't match here, was what the police are saying. 
I've, I've seen that CNN footage, and I have to say, just to be fair, and, and uh, I don't know if there's been any sort of face recognition uh, done on that footage, but when I look at that footage, I have to say, well, that, that could be anybody. I mean, it's hard to tell from that footage, but if you're a blood relative, who knows? I mean, wh- what, do you, what do you make of that? You've seen the footage. Can you make I've out seen a- the footage. It, looks, it has all of the hairy facial characteristics. It has the build. It, it matches... Uh, you know, you can't, it's not provable match, uh, but a, a person who really knows their nephew, like that aunt does, who lived with them very, very often, uh, and saw him swimming with his chest bare and things, said, that's Tamerlan. And uh, in, in any case, uh, the point is the government, like in Sandy Hook, is absolutely silent about these contradictions. They could easily clarify, they could easily bring forth the person that was stripped naked Put him before the press and show who he is and tell who he is and so that we can see the, the recognition. They can bring forth all of this video evidence that they claim proves that they dropped their backpacks and walked away and those backpacks exploded. I want to see the video of that backpack exploding. All right, Joe, well, stay with us. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with the publisher of World Affairs Brief. Don't go away. Welcome back. Joel Skousen is with us, the publisher of World Affairs Brief, worldaffairsbrief.com, and you can subscribe right there on the homepage. And it's a weekly news analysis service, information you won't get anywhere else, certainly not in the mainstream media. We're talking about the Boston bombing, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, and I realize it's a sensitive time. We're into a sort of an official mourning period, and occasionally when these events happen and we talk about them on the air, inevitably I will get emails saying, why could you talk how could you talk about something like this at a time like this or don't you think you're you're somehow sullying the memory of the of the victims and i always say the pursuit of truth requires no explanation or no apology uh the greatest thing or the most important thing one can do in a time like this is to search for the truth and uh, that's all we're trying to do connect some dots and try to make sense out of what is a very confusing story and Joel Skousen is here to help us do that. I want to take a couple of moments, Joel, uh, to talk about this um, uh, Ali Ab- um, Al-Harbi, the Saudi national who was supposedly uh, seen in the area of the bombing looking very suspicious. I believe he was tackled uh, by some, uh, some bystanders. Uh, and then in a unscheduled meeting between President uh, Obama and the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia, Prince Faisal, this al-Harbi is spirited out of the country, deported. What can you tell us about that? What's the latest on that? Well, there is no latest because the government is simply silent about him. They're the only people that know what's going on here. He was wounded in a fairly minor way in the attack, and uh, the government did go to his apartment. They did cart away several boxes of things which tended to indicate there was a problem, and yet there's nothing. He was let go. He was allowed to be deported, and there's been no explanation of what they took away from the apartment. This much like the Sandy Hook, people that they haul away in handcuffs, and they never explain to the public what's going on here. Now, what I think here is happening is that the Saudis were very much involved in... uh, in the 9-11 massacre, most of the hijackers that the government hired to do the 9-11 attack were Saudis. And Saudi Arabia has always been the major fund uh, funding source for al-Qaeda, uh, starting in the uh, Afghan war against the Soviets. And I don't think they ever lost control there. 
Uh, the government claims, of course, that they did. But we even know that Osama bin Laden had multiple contacts with CIA people, especially before 9-11 at a, uh, at a hospital in Dubai. It was at the U.S. hospital there uh, just before 9-11. So how could that be, you know, if he was uh, arch enemy number one? But uh, the Saudis have always been involved here. I think, for example, they're going to explain how these hijackers could have learned to fly any of these aircraft was that they had practice on Saudi, Iranian, or uh, Iraqi uh, jumbo jets. You just simply cannot learn to even keep those stable uh, flying assessment. As a pilot, I can tell you that. You just simply cannot do that. Now, as a member of Pilots for 9-11 Truth, we also have copies of all the radar tracks of the aircraft when they left Boston, and uh, they made a rendezvous. Each one of the hijacked aircraft made a rendezvous. You could see the radar blips rendezvous with another blip. And as soon as they cross, it's one thing. It's not conclusive to have a blip merge with another blip as long as they keep going in the same direction. But when both airplanes do a 90-degree turn after merging in the blip, then you've got to be suspicious that an aircraft was switched there. And the, there's two pieces of evidence in 9-11 that I think are conclusive, that in fact that these were not the airliners filled with people. Uh, number one is that two of the airliners, the ones that hit the World Trade Center, their serial numbers were still in the FAA database two years after 9-11 until that got noised about on the Internet, and then they removed it. But those planes were still flying. Number two, there was a huge bulge on the second aircraft that hit the the South Tower of the World Trade Center, a huge bulge on it. And they've tried to explain it away that it's just an optical illusion, but it's not an optical illusion. And I, in fact, called Boeing as a former military pilot, and I said, you know, every single major modification of an airliner has to be approved by the manufacturer. Did you approve that bulge? And the spokesperson said, no, we did not do it. She didn't say, what bulge? There's no bulge. She said, we did not do it. That Amazing. means Boeing itself knew that there was a modification. And third, I can tell you that the, every pilot is required to do a walk-around of an airplane liner before he accepts it and takes it. He has to actually walk around the airplane. There's no pilot in this world that would have seen that bolt on that airline and accepted that air, airliner. In other words, that bolt was not on the airliner that took off. It, let's it go back. Uh, if we could go back to Al Harby for a moment. Uh, my understanding is that the El Harbi name is well connected with Al Qaeda. Is that true? Yes, there are several relatives that are all Hardies that are members of Al Qaeda, but that tells us nothing, because Al Qaeda at the highest levels is a CIA operation. Right. So it means that he's part of a family who has been working with the CIA for generations, and uh, and he's a young guy. He's too young to be a mastermind in any of this. I don't hold that out as anything other than the fact that he probably knew too much and they wanted to get him out of the country. Uh, but this is, you know, many neocons have tried to make hay out of this, saying, oh, this is, a, this is another Muslim, you know, bombing related to the Middle East, and they're trying to cover up uh, on that. I think what they're covering up is the wider conspiracy of which these two boys were brought into, the Tsarnaev brothers. And... Um, and they're trying to pin the blame exclusively on them. I'm convinced they were part of an operation. Uh, they did have bomb-making equipment. Uh, they did buy uh, firecrackers. They did harvest the, uh, the black powder out of those to make uh, some of these bombs, but it was part of a much larger organization, and the proof is the triggering devices. All right, let's but take a time out. When we come back, Joe, we'll discuss... 
We'll discuss what the end game might be here. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Joel Skousen stays with us for a few moments yet from World Affairs Brief, worldaffairsbrief.com. That's where you can subscribe to this very unique, important weekly news service. comes to your inbox every week. And uh, we're discussing the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, of course. Uh, uh, Joel, what's, let's assume for a moment, and, and, and I, I think you know, this, there certainly are telltale signs that, that this may have been a, a false flag operation. If, let's assume for a moment that it was, what would be the end game here? Well, there's a couple of end games. Number one, even though these were not white male right-wing militia um, gun-wielding radicals that they could take advantage of this as they did in Oklahoma City Bond. They are trying to, the narrative is now turning to, they acted alone, they were not radicalized by Muslims, they were radicalized by Internet websites that belong to the American right wing, in particular 9-11 Truth or Alex Jones. They're trying to pin the blame on them, on essentially we people, uh, for radicalizing them. And... Uh, that's the, the, one of the agendas. The other agenda is that they were able to move into Boston and shut down the entire city, put it into lockdown, without even declaring martial law. You know, a lot of people in the American right wing have been you know, very, very worried about it. A lot of bogus claims about imminent martial law. And I have been one very active in debunking those, that the establishment's not going to pull imminent martial law or... Lock down the whole country unless it would destroy the economy and it would convince people there's a major conspiracy in government. But they didn't even have to do that. They all they told people is to stay indoors. You know, the, the reason why we know this isn't necessary in every major city, there's at least one shootout with a criminal suspect or a high speed chase almost every day. Do they ever lock down the city because there's a high speed chase going on or a lockdown? Not at all, but they did, and it shows the power that a high-profile terrorist attack can have on the people of making them completely submissive to whatever government. They feel like they're doing their patriotic duty. People were rousted out of their house. They were at gunpoint, told to lay down, put their hands behind their back without a warrant, nothing. Now, it's true that government sometimes, under sake of urgency, doesn't have time to go get a warrant for every house they want to search for down the street when there's a person who's run into the backyard of various houses. The procedure is just to walk up to the house, knock on the door for you and say, do we have your permission? Can we look for this guy who is, you know, seen you know, in the backyard? And most people would give their, their permission. That's the appropriate way to do that, ask for permission, but they didn't do that. And there was a tremendous amount of military, high-tech military vehicle, armored cars that were brought out. I counted at least 20. And nobody had been aware that there was that much, much armament even around the Boston area, and they may not be, they may have brought it in special for this, but it was truly ominous and did bespeak of, you know, homeland security and, and local police being militarized under federal control. There are just many, many things wrong with that scenario. Do you think, then, that what they may be doing here is trying to acclimatize people to this type of situation? So, as you say, they don't have to declare martial law officially, it just happens because, you know, they're just gradually turning up the, uh, the, the heat and people will be so used to these types of events 
they won't even question it anymore when when armed personnel come to their door demanding to come in and search the place. That's right. I think we, we're seeing an acclimation of people into a domestic terror state. And, uh, you know, for right now, it can't last very long. But you can tell, you know, as, as I've been predicting a nuclear war in the next eight, ten years with Russia and China. If that ever happens, it's all over. They can, they'll do anything they want. People will be completely submissive to whatever they want to do. And that's what I think they're preparing for. All right, let's uh, let's go to the phones and welcome Dave, who's calling somewhere in the uh, Toronto area. Dave, welcome. Hi, Mr. Sarah. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question to both of you is, do you think that this obvious false flag terror will eventually spawn legitimate homegrown terror? Like the racist, the Rison thing, he was just a normal guy. The, all these other bigger events, just like Aurora and Sandy Hook, they have telltale signs of something else. Something's up. Do you think it'll spawn legitimate terror? Good question. Joe, what do you think? Uh, repeat, kind of rephrase the question for me, Richard. Well, Dave is wondering whether these false flag operations may also spawn legitimate homegrown terrorism. I don't believe so. There isn't anything in the right wing, either in their writing or their actions, even the most hardened militia that has anything against children, anything against civilians, they're only against this kind of government tyranny, period. And so you just simply can't make the case. I mean, that's why the Oakland City City bombing, they had to bring in Terry Nichols, who had a right-wing background. Uh, Timothy McVeigh did not. He was uh, you know, an army guy who got uh, pulled into the CIA, the black operations. He went to his death thinking that he was doing a great favor to his country as a special CIA operative. He knew exactly what it was. And he had no interest in talking to anybody in the right wing. And so this was not a right wing person. This was made to look like a right wing attack. But I don't see any true, and I haven't seen, even up to this point, any true domestic terror, even among Muslims. Every one of them has been someone who has been loaded into it, enticed and entrapped by FBI agents of our troops, and they have no business putting people through that kind of enticement. It's one thing to simply be in the mosque and watch and listen, but when you go looking for disgruntled people and hand them 9-11 truth material, trying to radicalize them so you can blame not only the Muslims, but now you can blame the right wing. And I think that's what we're headed for. They're going to build a period of time. They want to build a, a feeling among the people that we have to do something about these right wing people. These conspirators are causing this problem. They're radicalizing people. We're having people die because of these right-wing conspiracies. I think they want to poison the people about it. That's necessary to prepare people for concentration camps someday, of turning in their fellow neighbor who believes in conspiracy. Thanks for the call, Dave. Uh, Joel, let me just uh, – one other loose thread that I wanted to talk to you about in, in terms of the Tsunarev brothers and the – I thought it was rather interesting. The reports coming out after the younger brother was apprehended uh, – that uh, there were reports that he was shot in the throat, that he shot himself, that it was self-inflicted, that someone else shot him. Uh, then we had, while he was in the hospital, reports saying that Sunarov said this, Sunarov said that, but then we heard reports that he couldn't talk. Uh, what's the latest on that? Have you been able to, to make any sense out of the, those conflicting stories? Did he shoot himself in the throat? 
Was it? Uh, well, he didn't because he was he was unarmed. There was only one weapon the two brothers had, and that was captured with the older brother. So he was completely unarmed. There's no way he could have, could have committed suicide. There was no justification for riddling that boat with holes, and he would have been completely dead had it not been laying behind the inboard motor, which protected him from the bullets. But he came out of that on his own power, and then was taken down, you know, with a throat wound. And so, you know, I'm very suspicious that uh, he may have been shot afterwards in the throat to keep him talking. Now, he was writing answers to the FBI, according to the Bureau, but they never read his rights. And the judge intervened and said, after reading his Miranda rights, he has not said a thing since being read his rights. So a good defense attorney is going to make all of that in it Makes you wonder, though, why wouldn't they, if they took out the uh, the elder brother, why wouldn't they do the same for him? You know, dead man can't speak, and that would have made it... Yeah, too, uh, many, too many cameras on it. Too many cameras. Too many cameras. You know, if they just shot him and he went down, they'd see him shooting an unarmed man. Uh, this isn't over yet, and uh, you know I'm not sure what they're going to do here with this uh, young fellow. But uh, so far, everything that the government is saying, we have only the government's word, is that he's admitting all of this, uh, and they're going to build the case just exactly as they want it. And there's no one that's going to be able to get to him to find out if the government is correctly reflecting his views or is making it up. Joel, not not that we want to instill fear or panic in people, but uh, do you believe that that if this was a false flag operation, that we're going to see sort of a ramping up of this type of activity? Are we going to see more of these high-profile terrorist activities in the United States? Well, one of the things I pointed out in the World Affairs Brief is that high-profile terror activities such as 9-11, Oklahoma City bombing, or the Boston Marathon bombing, or Sandy Hook, are indications of government terror, because if you have real terror, you have many, many more normal acts of terror. You know, we have a wide-open Mexican border. Uh, People from Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan could walk across that border every day of the week and blow up electrical pylons, put explosives in railroad tanks, or do suicide bombs in malls, and nothing has happened. We've never had any of those, except ones that the government has used agent provocateurs to ferment among young Muslims here in the United States. It is interesting. As you say, in, in, in a place like Israel, where they're obviously far more uh, acquainted with this, unfortunately, you have not daily occurrences, but certainly very frequent occurrences. People, you know, someone with a bomb steps onto a bus or, or walks into a restaurant. Uh, not high-profile in the sense of the, the terrorists picking high-profile targets, necessarily. So you're saying that's that, right. that that's, a, that's an indication of a false flag operation. That's right. It's an indication plus the fact that nobody claims responsibility. The Muslim people have always claimed responsibility for their terror attacks to gain notoriety for their cause and to cause pressure to be put on the government to cede some of their demands to make some of this terror go away. None of these high profile have ever been attached to a terrorist, um, either through, uh, let me just put it this way, Oklahoma City bombing is really a, a classic case. John Doe number two, who the FBI knew about, was probably hired by him 
was named Hussein al-Husseini. He was an Iraqi, former member of the Republican Guard. At the same time that Oklahoma City bombing took place, the United States was trying to justify intervention in Iraq. What better excuse could you have than one of McVeigh's accomplices, Hussein al-Husseini, was an Iraqi? But the government suppressed every knowledge about this guy. And, you know, in other words, it was handed to him on a silver platter to justify attacking Iraq as a source of terror. But because he worked for the FBI, they couldn't do it. And that's one of the proofs that this man was protected by government because he had to be connected to the actual bombing. Otherwise, why would the government want to protect his identity and not let him get before the, the grand jury? Well, Joel, uh, thank you for connecting some uh, dots for us tonight. And, and uh, again, you've pointed out numerous inconsistencies, uh, serious questions revolving the official version of the uh, events of the Boston Marathon bombing, and people can take that uh, as they will and do with it what they will, but uh, very, very disconcerting, obviously, uh, to hear all this. What's, uh, what's coming well, next? People, we've got a free sample issue of this, what we're discussing, and all the evidence and links that I have to brief by emailing the editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Email Joel at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Joel, thanks very much for this. My pleasure, Richard. Joel Skousen. All right. I've linked up to Joel's website on my homepage. Just click on Joel Skousen. It'll take you right there. And my homepage, of course, is richardserrett.com. And say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Look forward to hearing from you.
From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to our second broadcast from Zoomerplex, our new facility, our flagship station here at AM740 in Toronto. Pulled up stakes and moved down uh, the road just north of the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds and, uh, as I say, our second show from our new facility, Zoomerplex, and uh, just loving the new place. And uh, who arrived a little bit earlier? Uh took him on a tour, but Victor Vigiani, who joins me in studio. Victor, how are you today? Just fine. Great to be in the new digs here. What Just do you think? Fabulous. Really, really smooth. I really like it. Yeah, yeah. Got a yeah. nice, comfortable feel to it. Yeah, it's starting to feel like home now mm-hmm. that I know where all the buttons and switches are and so <laughs> forth. So you're, uh, you're heading down to Washington, D.C. for this big uh, citizens' hearing on, on uh, disclosure, which we, we had Stephen Bassett on, who's orchestrating this mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. Tell us a little bit about that uh, citizens' hearing. Well, basically what uh, Stephen has done, he's done a great job in orchestrating uh, a, a rather large week-long scenario where he has um, commandeered some 40 witnesses, expert witnesses, and they are going to be um, housed in sort of a, in the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., in a, in a mock hearing room. They're, they're, uh, they're duplicating a, a congressional hearing room. And what they've done is uh, selected six former uh, congressmen, actually one of them is a, a former senator, and they will serve as the, uh, uh, I guess, the investigative panel. And these uh, former congressmen uh, will, uh, congressmen and women, three men and three women, will um, pose questions to some uh, 40 witnesses who are going to be, I guess, uh, providing well over 30 hours of testimony about the uh, the UFO reality and the fact that we are being engaged by off-world civilizations. So, uh, and it's a, a week-long event and uh, runs from nine o'clock in the morning right till five with witness testimony, and then later in the evening there are a series of lectures. Uh, and presentations at the National Press Club. And one of those witnesses uh, is going to join us in a, in a couple of minutes here. That's correct, Don Schmidt. So before we get to Don, though, who are some of the other high-profile witnesses? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Paul Hellyer, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, will be one of them. Actually, he and uh, Edgar Mitchell, another witness. And Sixth Steve- man to walk on the moon. That's correct. Hellyer, former Defense Minister of Canada and Deputy Prime Minister. Precisely. Uh, we'll be giving the opening comments uh, tomorrow morning at 9.05, rather... Uh, at, at the at the hearing, and then after that, people like Stanton Friedman, uh, John Callahan, former FAA uh, flight uh, accident investigator. Oh my goodness, uh, it goes on and on. Jim Penniston, one of the people at the Reynolds from Forest uh, sighting. Uh, uh, Jesse Marcel uh, Jr. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. And I think Stephen has done a fantastic job of uh, collecting these witnesses and, I guess, uh, giving them an opportunity to state what their experiences have been, direct experiences. And he, he's very specific on this. He wants people who can actually have bona fide uh, evidence put forth before the, uh, before the panel. And what they want to do is investigate this as thoroughly as possible and 
they have been really exposed to some really, really good uh, media exposure. CBS, and the Detroit News, the Huffington Post have all um, sort of rallied around the flagpole to to uh, to show their interest in this. So there could be some very, very big mainstream media coverage of this event, and that's one of the things that Stephen really wants to uh, to headline about the uh, the hearings. What do we know about the the, the makeup of the the former Congress uh, men and women? Are they uh, they're not necessarily UFO buffs. In fact, I believe I read one account where someone said, "I have no, <laughs> no real interest in the UFO issue, and I don't believe I don't believe in it." So, how did how did they how did Stephen Bassett go about selecting them? My understanding is that he wanted a balance. He wanted people that were first of all that, that were open minded. Uh, that was the first criteria that they would, um, uh, you know, represent uh, the, the the Congress as it would be today. If it was to be done in a in a in a regular con- a congressional format, so when a, a regular congressional format is struck the way it normally would be, you've got a lot of people who are skeptical about exactly what's going on, and that that level of skepticism is definitely present on the panel, and that's a good thing, where you have people who want to ask questions but then are open enough to understand and to want to bring out the truth rather than just to deny or profess the truth. They want to get all the information out so that the American public and the international public can make a decision about what's really going on. And I, I know Stephen did a great job in selecting these people, and uh, uh, we'll just see exactly how objective they really are when the questions start to fly. And presumably, they're going to hear information that they've never been aware of before. This is going to be some jaw-dropping stuff. I mean, when you have when you have a commander at a, a, a military commander at a, a former a, a nuclear missile silo uh, telling them that he witnessed UFOs basically disabling the missiles. I'm, I'm guessing that's going to be new information to a lot of these Congress people. Well, of, of course, it exactly will be because there, there's no way that even some of the experts that are uh, that are witnesses, even they and even myself, I've been involved in this for 35 years, I don't know all of the stuff that's going on. So if people are, would be coming forward, even, even to uh, an expert, um, there's going to be a lot of new uh, information uncovered. And these six individuals who literally uh, and collectively have uh, well over 90 years of experience uh, as, as, as representatives for the, in, in Congress, this is going to be all basically very, very new stuff to them. They may have heard some of the peripheral information. They may have heard some of the incidents. But they will not have heard, for example, um, the, the number of missiles that uh, that were shut down. That 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 may be new to them. And the other thing they would not hear or be aware of that, that all of these kinds of things are national security issues that the government of the United States is is, is hiding. So this is something that will be new to them. All these different perspectives are going to be coming up uh, that they will not necessarily be aware of. And when you find out, not only what, when these perspectives come forward, the question becomes, why hasn't the American media and the international media jumped all over this in a way that would let everyone know exactly what's going on? Well, it'll be interesting to see how the mainstream media handles the citizens' hearing, how much coverage, what kind of coverage uh, they, they, they give to it. Let's, let's bring on one of the, uh, uh, the witnesses that will be appearing before this hearing. And uh, he's no stranger to this program. Donald Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. And prior to that, he was a, a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek for the International UFO Reporter. He graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. Oh, I didn't know that. 
I didn't know he was from, he, he's, he was in uh, Montreal. Amazing. He's also the author of a dozen or dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of two best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell and The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. Presently, he's a, contrib- a contributing writer for UFO Magazine on the board of directors for the International UFO Research Museum. And he's got a brand new book out about the secret history of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and, of course, notorious Hangar 18, which he says is the real area 51. Don, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, hello, Richard and Victor. Great to be back with both of you. Two corrections very quickly. Uh, it was Concordia University, one of the universities. This one happens to be in Mequon, Wisconsin. Ah, Arizona. I didn't know that. Okay, I didn't because know there was another Concordia. <laughs> throughout the country, they're uh, a Lutheran University. Interesting that I'm a Catholic attending a Lutheran uh, campus. And uh, the uh, next uh, upcoming book about um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is actually due for release in August. Ah, and okay. Right. All right, well, we look forward to that. And the fact that you went to Concordia, not in Montreal, we won't hold that against you. Very good, thank you. But uh, love Canada, and Toronto is certainly one of my favorite cities in the entire world. What are you going to say before this committee, Don? Are you able to tell us? Well, I want to certainly, uh, I'm part of the uh, Roswell panel on Wednesday afternoon. And uh, I only wish I have two dress rehearsals for upcoming concerts coming up next weekend, so I won't even get into D.C. until early uh, Wednesday afternoon, and I have to head directly from the airport right over to the Washington Press Club for the uh, afternoon hearing. And I'm the first speaker. I, I present the first opening statement that very afternoon. And you... Victor had mentioned Stan Friedman and with Stan, and then with uh, Dr. Kevin Randall and Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., and then even um, Edgar Mitchell over Skype is going to be joining us discussing specifically the Roswell incident of 1947. And I, I'm amazed, first of all, that the media still continually falls back on this nonsense of a being a, a Roswell being a weather balloon, Project Mogul, wooden crash dummies, uh, no regard whatsoever to the caliber, to the level of eyewitness testimony, the growing number of deathbed declarations, all attesting to the fact that it did happen. Uh, deathbeds are admissible here in the United States as physical evidence. They would have us throw out Roswell deathbed testimony, but everything else would apply. Well, I'm sorry, we can't uh, segregate, you know, we can't discriminate against one or the other. Um, Historically, Roswell happened. July 8th, 1947, the United States military put out a press release. I mean, it's all common knowledge. And the very notion that the United States government is up to four official explanations regarding this one incident, if that in itself doesn't you know, cast a lot of doubt as to the veracity of the government and their continuing attempt to cover this up, and I think it's just uh, high time that not only Congress, but the last time I was on Larry King, for example, if I... We, we would not have lost a satellite feed. I was going to close by making the remark. We could have former presidents Clinton and Carter 
We could have the late Senator Barry Goldwater. We could have the late Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico. We could have the uh, then governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, all on the program, all lamenting the fact that even they could not get the truth about what happened in Roswell in 1947. So I feel I'm in very good company. I so tire of suffering people who have never looked into this, never so much have talked to a single witness, just, you know, summarily dismissing this. For, you know, just total, uh, you know, ignorance on their part. And I hope that the press, especially the Washington uh, Press Corps, is willing to at least consider that these people can't all be lying. They, they so often are highly trained, highly qualified, very professional people. We're not talking about backwoodsmen who just uh, happened to mistake a light in the sky late at night or an errant weather balloon at 10,000 feet altitude. This was something right there on the ground in front of them. They held it in their hands. All right, Don, listen, we've got to step away for a timeout. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the hearing and the testimony, and then we'll move on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the real Area 51. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Victor Vigiani in studio, Don Schmidt on the line. Stay with us. Welcome back. Donald R. Schmidt is uh, with us. Victor Vigiani in studio. Don Schmidt, uh, if there's another person who knows more about Roswell, I'd like to meet him. Uh, and now he's uh, finishing up work on a new book on Hangar 18, of course, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I know, Victor Vigiani, you wanted to follow up with one more point on Roswell. Yeah, I just wanted to throw this at Don. I, I, I kind of know the answer myself, but I'd like to get your perspective on it, Don. Yeah, I, I, it's just what you mentioned earlier, just before the break, regarding the media and, and the way they're just overlooking this and just looking the other way and totally ignoring it and participating in, this, in, the, in the, you know, the, the, the silence about all of this. I, I guess my question to you would be, uh, how much longer... A, can the media continue to ignore this, uh, given all the evidence? And then B, how many more times can the United States Air Force or the government itself throw out another bone of explanation uh, about the, the Roswell incident? I guess it's a two-pronged question, and I guess you could probably answer both. Well, each and every time we have had the good fortune of having a major news organization I'll cite the example of CBS 48 Hours. And it was a senior uh, newsman at that time, Phil Jones, who spent four days with us in Roswell and at the time was able to speak with a number of highly uh, experienced, high-ranked individuals who were there, who were involved. We were out at the site and we were out at the hangar. We walked through the base and things. and And... I'll never forget Jones taking us aside and saying, you guys have one of the biggest stories of all time here. I just wish we could do something with it. And it, to, to me, the, the continuing situation with the, at least the American media is they are so handcuffed. They essentially walk into their newsrooms each morning and they receive their talking points. They're told what they can touch as far as what they can cover and what they can't. I can't tell you, too, how often I have had even astronauts such as the, uh, the late uh, Deke Slayton who've confided that they would describe to newspaper editors some of the most profound UFO experiences, and the editors would tell them point blank, 
it's taboo. We can't touch it. We have our orders. We'll lose our licenses. And it was the same experience down in Roswell back in 47, where they were contacted, you know, within a day. They were threatened by the FCC. They would lose their licenses within 24 hours if they should persist in uh, putting out the story. So it was one of the things that the government decided that, at least at that time, if we needed to enlist or acquire the cooperation of one body, one organization at all to maintain a level of silence, a level of suppression of the truth, it would obviously be the national media. And they have been willing accomplices ever since. And I think not only by threat of loss of you know their, you know, their, their very profession, but the fact that they've been so indoctrinated, so conditioned. It's amazing, the young journalists, what they don't know. I made a remark to a journalist uh, reporter at CNN just a few months ago that you people will someday finally wake up and realize just how much you don't know. And he didn't like that because they think they're on top of things. Well, news is cyclical. It's, you know, 24 hour cycles. If they can't investigate and solve something within a day, they move on to the next subject. And if it's one of the things that I certainly, and my partner Tom Carey, in writing this book on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, when you actually delve into the history of the UFO phenomena as far as on the government basis, it takes you months. It can take you years to fully grasp and understand what was going on behind the scenes. And what journalist is going to take that time? All right. Listen, yeah. before we uh, we talk about uh, Hangar 18, let me uh, grab a call here. Bob in Toronto would like to ask you about Roswell. Bob, go ahead. Uh, my, under- my understanding is that uh, in 1947, the only uh, nuclear bombardment group that existed was at Roswell. That is correct. And also nearby White Sands, uh, you had nuclear... Well, you had... Uh, uh, the beginnings of ICBM t- technology. With the captured German V-2 rockets, yes. And I guess Werner von Braun was working on that. So if you were an alien, I guess that would be the place to be. Um, so that's not direct evidence. But uh, if there is another technology uh, greater than ours and people who are observing Earth and uh, our activities, that that would be a place that they'd want to be at that time. Is, is that, am I on the right track there? Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, um that is precisely, you know, the position that we've taken for a number of years. If you go according to the Air Force's, the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book, in July of 1947, there were more UFO sightings in New Mexico than anywhere else throughout the country. Now, New Mexico, as you described, was the hotbed of all military activity at that time. There was no place more sensitive in the world. It's, it's amazing whenever I'm lecturing on college campuses and I throw out the, the question even to the college professors, where was the first atomic bomb detonated? <laughs> and, and you wouldn't believe how many, you know, well, Japan, of course, Japan. And you go, no, here, United States, New Mexico. And they look at you like, are, are you serious? And so, yes, the first atomic bomb, and you mentioned Roswell, the headquarters of the 509 Bomb Group, the very squadron that deployed those atomic weapons over Japan. White Sands Proving Ground with the testing of the captured V-2 German rockets 
von or Werner, Werner von Braun as far as part of the whole Operation Paperclip of all the captured German scientists. You had ongoing atomic research at Los Alamos. And just as we, if you would imagine, we would approach an inhabited planet sometime in the very distant future, the very first thing we would most likely check out is the military potential of that planet. We'd want to know if, you know if they could beat us up or not, or we should hightail it and get out of there real quick. So you're, you're quite correct. The first thing you check out is the military potential, and New Mexico would have been that very location. Bob, thank you for that. Uh, thanks for the call. Don, so how did you decide, when did you decide, how did you decide that you needed to focus your attention now on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? How does Roswell connect with Wright-Patterson? Well, that's the point exactly, Richard, the fact that it does connect. Uh, there have been other books about, not specifically Wright-Patterson, but about, you know, the, the UFOs in the government, that type of thing, and the, the government's uh, official policy of investigating the UFO phenomenon, Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, as I've mentioned, and then the Condon Report, which served as uh, the the scapegoat essentially for the Air Force to abandon ship and bail out of the entire UFO investigation once and for all. But no one has ever approached it under the pretext that if Roswell indeed did happen, if it was true, do the reaction, does the response, does the behavior of the military match precisely that notion. In other words, are they responding to the fact that they have one drop in their hands, and now what are they going to do about it? As they quickly scurry to come up with answers, determine who, why, and where. And we've had all types of eyewitness testimony, and we've had documentation uh, describing how the wreckage, for example, did go directly to right field immediately after the cleanup operation, the retrieval operation. This is in Dayton, Ohio. In Dayton, Ohio. You had two adjoining bases at that time. You had Wright Field and you had Patterson Field. And what was especially interesting about Patterson Field, now this is pre-Air Force. This is at the time when it was Air, uh, Army Air Corps. So it's just within months before the Air Force would break off as a separate official branch of the military. And Wright Field would become Wright-Patterson. The Patterson side in July of 1947 was the headquarters of T-2, which specifically were engineers, scientists, that did all reverse engineering, for example, of captured weaponry and armory from World War II, whether it was German, Japanese, even Russian. And so it would make perfect sense that if you had something of either a foreign design or something beyond that, such as in the case of Roswell, that its final destination would be right field, would be Patterson T2, which eventually would become the Foreign Technology Division. We always refer to FTD, and I'm not talking about the floral uh, delivery <laughs> company. So we have, for example, eyewitness testimony, the late uh, Brigadier General Arthur Exxon, who was at Foreign Technology T2 at that time. And he described to us how they were fully informed that material from Roswell was coming to their facility for testing. 
Wasn't uh, Corso uh, attached to the Foreign Technology Division at the Pentagon? Uh, yes, he was. And I had the good fortune of meeting Philip Corso on two separate occasions, and we spoke at, at some length about that very point, that foreign technology, if this was just a mere weather balloon, um, which materials we're talking about strictly off-the-shelf, neoprene rubber and wooden sticks, reflective foil, tape, you know, twine, that type of thing, nothing that would have had any need for further analysis, any testing. And so the very fact that this material was transferred to Dayton, Ohio, for such testing, as described by General Exxon, as described by Colonel Corso, and described by a growing legion of people, which we certainly get into at some length in the new book, the upcoming book, it clearly demonstrates a pattern that would even necessitate, we always we, we refer back to, and many ufologists talk about the famous Twining letter that General Nathan Twining put out in response to the inquiry as to what are we dealing with here? Is there something truly going on? There was much suspicion that we were either dealing with some type of new American technology or possibly Soviet in the summer of 1947. And Twining, after he had consulted again with his chief technicians, engineers, physical scientists, that's the amazing thing. They were nuts and bolts people. And the point is, within two months after Roswell, Twining was the one who wrote the letter stating that the phenomenon was real that it was, was not visionary or fictitious, and went on to describe it as being metallic and disc-shaped. What did he know already at that time, within months after Roswell, that the rest of us didn't know, that the press didn't know, that even the underlings, the people that were uh, beneath him in rank, were not privy to? So the answers, for some reason, were ver ver very immediate. It wasn't like they, had, they needed to cons, you know, conduct a long-term study to find out what people were describing you know, in the sky at some distance. It, they described clearly what supports the notion that they had recovered physical evidence. And that's what we go through step by step in the new book, that the actions match the actions at Roswell that something is recovered, it's transferred to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. They attempt to, as Exxon described, at first they thought it was Russian, and as Exxon stated on the record to us, that there was a consensus from foreign technology that the materials were from space, that they weren't from here. All right, we're going to take a time out here in just a moment. Uh, let me just reset here. Don Schmidt is with us, Roswell investigator, uh, a witness at the upcoming Citizens Hearing into UFO Disclosure in Washington, and a new book on its way soon, uh, talking about the secret history of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Hangar 18. We'll get into Hangar 18 as well here in a moment. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, of course, located in Dayton, Ohio, and... It may, in fact, just be the real Area 51. Don stays with us. Likewise, Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Z-Land News Network. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. <laughs> 
Welcome back. Don Schmidt is with us. The website roswellinvestigator.com, and I've linked up to his site on my homepage, richardserrett.com. We're talking about his upcoming book, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, specifically Hangar 18. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. It never ceases to amaze me, Don, the uh, the clarity with which uh, uh, you you and Tom uh, use and employ in in, in your books and your writings and and literally the hundreds of interviews that you've done. Um, just you know, from a, a listener's point of view and from a I guess a uh, someone who really is not familiar with it, the, the, this idea of Hangar 18 is it is it sort of just a sort of an iconic place or is this an actual place where they actually brought stuff? put it on the floor uh, and, and tried to reassemble it or put it in crates? It, exactly, you know, that's, what, what's that all about? Well, and, and thank you for those kind words, Victor. I appreciate that. But, uh, no, is it, we demonstrate in the book, and uh, we trace the history of the very name, the very title of Hangar 18, and uh, we pretty much demonstrate that it's, it's part of the legend, part of the folklore of what even the Air Force attempted to do in downplaying all the rumors, the talk, even from base personnel, that there were underground vaults and tunnels and hangars and that there were secret entrances and there were all types of ventilation uh, pipes sticking out from the ground and going to who knows where, that type of thing. And then especially following the materials and remains arriving from Roswell, it became part of that legend. Uh, we've heard of people t- and, and on tour buses, for example, and uh, the, the tour uh, driver would make uh, the remark, and that particular building over there is where they keep the aliens on ice, that type of remark. And, uh, you know, just continually trying to make uh, light of the fact that there may indeed be something to it. There, w- there was no Hangar 18. There never was. There, there are Hangars 17A and B and C, that type of thing. There is a Building 18. It's a brick, pink, pinkish building. And from eyewitness description, there was a tunnel. There was, it was connected to an actual hangar. Hangar 23. And Hangar 23, presently, there's a fresh seal of concrete, as though they, they closed something off on the floor of the hangar, as though there was a chamber or a vault that led to something else. And the information we have is that it led to Building 18, which is a lab facility, that they would, they would, would have been able to do all types of testing at that time. So, Hangar 18, no. Building 18, yes. Was it somehow connected? Yes, there is uh, testimony to that effect. But more likely, there were other hangars involved. In fact, we describe in the upcoming book uh, numerous MPs, guards, uh, doctors, even uh, technicians that were brought in to service equipment, uh, some of the uh, nuclear reactor uh, uh, sites on the base, and they would be taken to lower chambers, lower hangars, and such descriptions, and being uh, or, or being witness to cryogenic 
uh, chambers and glass containers which appeared to preserve the remains, and more times than not, uh, the description that these were from New Mexico, that these were from Roswell in 1947. Uh, back in the late 80s, the New York Magazine uh, featured an interview with Senator Barry Goldwater, and Goldwater had this friend, uh, General Curtis LeMay. Yes. He asked LeMay, he said, because Goldwater was a huge UFO buff, he said, is it true that, that they have, you know, aliens stored in, in a secret room at Wright-Patterson, and can I get in there? And LeMay got really angry with him, apparently, according that to Goldwater, correct. and he said, holy hell, not only can't you get in there, but don't ever mention this to me again. That's correct. What, what can you tell us about this LeMay? What was his connection with, uh, with uh, Wright-Patterson? Well, LeMay would have been head of research and development at the Pentagon, in 47. And we also demonstrate in the book that, again, research and development, well, just by the very title, they would have uh, had access to all the reverse engineering, all the development, all the spin-off technology from anything that was a new uh, technology, uh, a foreign technology, an alien technology for that matter. They would have been at the forefront and LeMay happened to be in charge of that. The fact that Goldwater was even interested in the subject, we've been able to determine, and it was through personal contact with Goldwater right up to his death, that one of the people that inspired his keen interest in the subject was none other than the very base commander from Roswell in 1947, Colonel William Blanchard, who would go on to become a four-star general at the Pentagon. And he was the one who, in the mid-60s, told Goldwater all about Roswell. And then hence Goldwater going to, and Goldwater was, you know, a senator at that time. He was a brigadier general. And he went to his friend, Kurt LeMay, as you described, Richard. And one of the things that Goldwater told us that he did not mention the writer from New York Magazine. Don, let, let, let's just leave this as a cliffhanger. Okay. We'll take a time out. You can tell us what Barry Goldwater told you about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Don Schmidt, Roswell investigator, Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zeland News Network, talking Hangar 18. Welcome back. Don Schmidt with us, Roswell investigator, talking Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the secret history of an area or a Hangar 18, the real Area 51. I've done a number of shows on Area 51. In, in fact, the, the upcoming uh, Season 3 of the uh, TV show, uh, also called The Conspiracy Show, will be uh, featuring an episode on, on Area 51. But now we're hearing that, uh, you know, maybe we should be focusing more on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network. Jump in here. Yeah, you uh, alluded to your last comment there about uh, Barry Goldwater. Um, the, 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 the Richard referred to as a cliffhanger. What uh, was that all about? you want to share that with us? Well, uh, Goldwater maintained that we would never... He finally, you know, basically just gave up on ever securing any information. He felt that we would never get the files released, that there would never be any disclosure. And one of the things that he... And the reason he emphasized that was that in General LeMay's very terse response to him about, hell no, and don't ever ask me again, what Goldwater did not publicly state was that LeMay also threatened to have him court-martialed 
if he should ever bring up the subject again. Now, again, the, the press can just so tacitly dismiss this, and it's all a silly season and nothing. I mean, when a <laughs> former chair of the Joint Chiefs threatens a acting senator, former presidential candidate here in the United States, that I'm going to have you court-martial if you were bring up this subject that doesn't exist in the eyes of uh, you know, the military, the eyes of the, the, the media, there's something to it. And that's the point that I hope if we drive anything home to the press this next week in Washington, that it's time that the press start at least coming up to speed, looking at this subject and the fact that it hasn't gone away after now 66 years. That's a phenomenon that has been with us most likely for centuries, for thousands of years, and that people continue to have UFO experiences, highly professional, qualified individuals who would swear on a, on a, on a stack of Bibles that what they experienced was something that defied conventional explanation, and yet they're poo-pooed and laughed at and ridiculed, and even the ridicule factor we can trace back to Roswell. Yeah, of course. I mean, th- th- that to me is the is the, is one of the key components of why this thing is continues to be uh, repressed. And th- I would imagine that it really um, makes you angry. <laughs> you know, when you get to a, a gut level at this, it must really uh, get you upset to to realize that the press, the way it exists, or at least the way it professes itself to exist, is so far behind the curve on this. It's laughable. It is laughable. And that, to me, is, is a testimony to the, either their uh, planned ignorance or their being told, being manipulated in such a way that you shall not get ahead of the curve on this. You mentioned uh, at the top of the program how it's already the uh, Citizens uh, Disclosure Project coming up has received a lot of good media attention. Well, it's also received a lot of very negative Mm -hmm. reporting here in the states and it's not even happened i mean they already have made up their minds that whatever we are going to be stating it doesn't matter i mean the quality and the level of the people involved i mean my god dr edgar mitchell the moment that he went public and stated that roswell was true that it did happen all of his colleagues his very you know friends at nasa they all turned and attacked him but up to that point, he was a national figure. He was a national hero. He'd walked on the moon. MIT, Ph.D. But because he dare mention that he believed that UFOs were indeed visiting, that we were being visited by an intelligence off the planet, it's like anything but UFOs, anything but extraterrestrial. And that is the myopia that especially exists within the American press. And it's sad, because if not for the civilians, if not for the civilian UFO researchers, we wouldn't be hearing anything about the subject any longer. At least during the Air Force projects, there was a, a, a daily banter. There were press conferences, and even though the Air Force was constantly telling us, you know, it was either swamp gas or water droplets or temperature inversions to planet Venus, that type of thing. 
at least it was in the forefront of the, the press. It was something they could follow up on. Don, when we, we, we hear about Area 51, of course, the big name that we always hear in, in tandem is Bob Lazar, Bob the Lazar, whistleblower. Yeah. Is there a Bob Lazar sort of affiliated with, with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? Yes, in fact, we name uh, a, a number of them. One of them, for example, we, we get into is some physical remains that were snuck out of Wright-Pat that uh, a number of officers you know, wanted copies made of. And the um, technician that was involved in making the copy, the cast of this physical evidence, and clearly suggesting it's been tested by six different uh, uh, pathologists, paleontologists, zoologists, and every one of them suggesting it's not human, it's not primate, it's not animal, it's something else. And that's the type of thing that, as long as there remain the questions, as long as the mystery persists, that's where, again, a good journalist needs to finally just step out of the box and, and just realize these people, again, as I said, they can't all be lying. They can't all be on the same script making up these stories time and time again because they're all part of the same puzzle, the same mosaic. You can plug these pieces in, and they all fit. Do you think, do you think, you mentioned the idea of a good journalist stepping forward, and that to me is a very tantalizing um, sort of edge to, to, to work on for a second. If there would be uh, a journalist or an editor somewhere at, at some newspaper saying, well, you know what, I, the documentation is just too pointed, it's just too real for us to continue to, um, to, to ignore this. Do you think that that kind of maybe perhaps senior editor would be put in its place, uh, put in his or her place, and not allowed to pursue this? Or would the documentation be so overwhelming that the, in one way or another they would have to come forward? Well, as, and we know who we could, could uh, publicly mention, whether it be George Knapp or Billy Cox. You mentioned the Huffington Post, uh, Lee Spiegel with uh, the Huffington Post. So we do have a number of good journalists in the forefront who have been willing and able to tackle this subject. But again, albeit you know, on a limited level, limited scope, it's not where they've ever received an assignment to actually go and produce the evidence, produce as far as the hardcore evidence that once and for all demonstrates that there is a true UFO phenomenon. I would mentioned Phil Jones with CBS News with the uh, 48 Hours program. I was very pleased when they completed that segment. And Dan Rather himself read the closing remark, which was, truly something extraordinary crashed outside of Roswell, New Mexico, in July of 1947. Well, that's from CBS News. They were willing to at least give us that much. Truly something extraordinary. And that's all we're still saying. That's why it's still an ongoing investigation. Don, uh, to what extent has Area 51 overshadowed Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? Was that by design? Never mind what's going on over there. Look over here. Uh, What is the status of of, uh, Wright-Patterson? My position remains that uh, 51 has been nothing but a diversion, a distraction, that uh, there indeed may have been some testing, but the real history of UFOs, the aftermath 
from Roswell up through the 60s and even up through the mid-80s clearly demonstrates that Wright-Patterson was the official headquarters of all UFO research, UFO activity here in the United States. It's what spawned the cover-up. It's where they attempted all the reverse engineering of not only Roswell, but I'm sure other crash retrieval incidents. It's where bodies were stored, where bodies were autopsied, where were tested biologically and determined to be from, you know, another planet, that type of thing. We don't have such testimony. You mentioned Bob Lazar. Well, we have, you know, just a number of lone whistleblowers from Area 51. But from Wright Pat, there is such a rich history of eyewitness testimony. High-ranking military people. I remember uh, Captain Ed Ruppelt, who was the first director of Project Blue Book, even describing that by the end of July of 1947, that the military was in a panic over this situation. Well, a panic over a recovered weather balloon? I don't think so. Victor, we've got time for one more question. Very quickly, uh, the citizen hearings are going to be an opportunity for everybody who's involved in this, all 40 witnesses and and yourself, um, to bring their A-game a to the... Um, Our day in court, yeah. Uh, yeah, your day in court. This is going to be the opportunity. We probably won't get this opportunity again, though. Uh, what's going to be your A-game? What what are what's one or two of the things that you think you're going to bring to the table to really throw out the panel to uh, to make an impression? We have about two minutes. These Congress, these Congress people, uh, I'm pretty sure they're all attorneys. And I'm going to hit them as far as, especially as I mentioned, our day in court. The fact that with Roswell, unlike just about any other UFO case, we have a growing number of deathbed testimonies, deathbed declarations. And as I described before, they're admissible in a court of law. As attorneys, they, above everything else, should realize that this is physical evidence. This is, you know, these are smoking gun eyewitness testimonies, and down to a man woman and child, they're all describing the same incident. They're all describing the little people. They're all describing the characteristics of the metal that it defied conventional explanation. And the other thing I'm going to drive home is the fact of the, the culpability, the fact that American citizens were threatened, that children were threatened with physical violence, that parents were threatened with the deaths of their children over the recovery of a weather balloon. This was a violation of the American Constitution, that the United States military was used to threaten its own citizenry. And the fact the United States government is responsible for that. All right. Listen, good luck, Don. Uh, We'll watch this unfold very, very carefully. I appreciate your time tonight and uh, uh, can't wait for the uh, the book on Wright-Patterson to come out. Well, we'll do something again when that happens, Richard and Victor. We'll see you in a few days in D.C. then. Absolutely. For sure. All right. Thanks, Don. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Victor. Good luck. Good luck down there. Well, it'll be a great opportunity. I just I can't wait for it. All right. Well, back uh, next week, as I said, we'll discuss the lost and found tribes of Israel, the ten lost tribes, do some biblical prophecy with Nelson Thal and Miss Steele from Bloom and Steele. Hope you'll be aboard for that. Hey, do me a favor. A little plug here for the mighty Aphrodite, my beloved. Uh, go to indigo.com. Indiegogo, sorry, Indiegogo.com, the crowdfunding platform, and check out her latest project. It's uh, Adopt a Greek Olive Tree. So again, 
indiegogo.com and just search for Adopt a Greek Olive Tree. That's what the mighty Aphrodite's uh, up to. She's working hard on it. Hope you can lend your support. Any, uh, any support would be appreciated. Thanks, Tim Spreen, for production. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.